Welcome to I Might Believe in Fairies. I am your host, Aaron Herber. This is a podcast about stories, myths, and the Catholic faith. Everybody, welcome to I Might Believe in Fairies. I'm joined today uh, by Richard Rowland, and Richard is going to introduce himself because there's a lot for him to say. <laughs> uh, yes, so Aaron, thank you so much for having me. Um, I, I am really excited about your project here and all the things that you want to do. I uh, We were talking a little bit before we, we hit record. I definitely think there are... Uh, there are not so many of these kinds of podcasts out there that we don't need uh, a few good ones um, uh, more. So, yeah. So my name is Richard Rowland, as you mentioned. Um, I'm a I'm a Germanic philologist. I'm a data analyst. I'm an Orthodox Christian and a podcaster. So I, I do a few different things. Right now, I have a podcast a podcast that I co-host on Ancient Faith Radio called the Ammon Sewell Podcast, uh, which is sort of Tolkien through the lens of Orthodox Christianity. Then I also have um, um, a series that I've been doing, graciously hosted by Jonathan Pajot on his channel, The Symbolic World, about medieval universal history. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a medievalist and a kind of, a, let's say, a specialist in medieval languages, uh, which is not actually my day job. It's, it's what I do for fun. And and uh, and uh, so because of that, I have a deep appreciation and love for the stories, uh, not just fantasy stories, but the things that fantasy stories are built on, which tends to be sort of the scaffolding of the medieval of, of the Middle Ages. Even stories that uh, fantasy stories that aren't set in the Middle Ages still assume sort of some basic medieval you know premises. So uh, and uh, the other thing that I do is I talk a lot about the sacramental imagination, which is. If I, had to, if I had to sort of identify one thing over the last three or four years, which has kind of defined most of my speaking engagements and the writing that I'm doing, um, so I'm actually currently uh, trying to uh, uh, basically edit uh, a, an anthology volume, uh, which will be called Finding the Golden Key, on the sacramental imagination. And I would just say that you and the kind of people who listen to your podcast are exactly the kind of people that I am looking for to submit to that uh, submit essays, submit chapters to that book. So uh, if people want to know more about that, they can go to findingthegoldenkey.com. And uh, yeah, so that's kind of my deal. Um, just Tolkien, uh, the, the liturgy, the sacramental imagination, old languages, vowel changes in misty forests, and a bunch of, bunch of medieval people who I really love and care about, even though most people have never heard of them. <laughs> How do you have the time? That's crazy. <laughs> You know, people ask me that question, and I, I never know, like, quite how to respond. Uh, because the truth is, like, these things are, I mean, everyone makes time for their hobbies, you know. Uh, and so, like, th these these things are, I mean, this is what I do for fun, you know. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't I don't really have a good answer other than that. I don't, I don't really watch much TV, so maybe that's, there it is. Yeah. Maybe that's what it is, but, yeah. You don't watch TV. You don't have a huge social social media presence. That kind of uh, those things eat up time. And, yeah, uh, I have. I have. I already have more of a social media presence than I would like to. I would like to. I would like to have less of a social media presence for sure. 
<laughs> but how can you debate random people on the internet then if you don't have social yeah. media? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, great. Um, welcome to the show. And this is like episode four, so I still kind of don't know what I'm doing, but just plugging along. And we are. this is a Tolkien episode. I know I, I know that I said that I would not focus on Tolkien, but what I want to talk about today with Richard um, kind of applies to... I guess, fantasy genre fiction in general and how we can use that to um, connect to the liturgy. And Jonathan, Jonathan, John, who's Jonathan? Uh, Richard. <laughs> You're thinking of Peugeot. Uh, I was, I was thinking of Peugeot. Um, uh, Richard, you wrote an essay, or it was a speech you gave. Um, yeah, so this is a, it was a, a keynote, a two-part keynote talk that I gave at Doxamu two weeks ago in, in Emmaus, Pennsylvania. Uh, so this is an Orthodox Christian uh, Tolkien conference. Um, uh, although we have we have people from several different Christian traditions uh, represented there, and uh, you know many for for many of whom was their their first time actually stepping into an Orthodox church. But they were they were um, you know just they were there because they they're they're fans of the podcast and they wanted to to meet up with some like minded people and talk about Tolkien. So that's great. And um, you gave the keynote address, and um, you sent that to me the other day, and I read through it. And there's a lot in there I didn't understand, especially when you, when you started talking about St. Maximus the Confessor and his theology. Um, but what was kind of the main thrust of that, of that essay, or the speech you wrote? So the, the impetus for that talk, which I've been really working on for about a year, a little longer than a year, is that so I didn't grow up Orthodox, I should say. So you grew up Catholic and you you left for a while and you mm -hmm. came back, right? Uh, so I and I don't know, but what I would imagine is when you came back you had um, there was a lot of groundwork from your childhood that was laid. So there while there was probably this increased appreciation and understanding for your mm -hmm. faith and and all that, but but also like there was a lot of groundwork that had already been laid by that yeah. That experience you had of like going to mass as a kid and things like that. You yeah, know? it was pretty easy uh, to kind of fall back into it. It wasn't. Well, I say it was difficult. My wife said it only took it only took you like a couple months to kind of get used to yeah. things again. And yeah. I'm like, it took forever, but yeah, it, I think that's fair to say that there was a lot of groundwork that was already made. In those transitional spaces, uh, two months can feel like forever, even though it's not really that long. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So. What, so I grew up uh, Baptist mm -hmm. um, uh, and uh, very sort of fundamentalist, not Southern Baptist, but that kind of thing. Okay. You know? And I, I didn't grow up in a liturgical tradition at all, um, and I didn't have any kind of liturgical formation um, to speak of before I um, before I came to the Orthodox Church. I definitely had visited various services from other traditions, but, uh, but not, not in any kind of a formative way. So, but what I found was when I came to the Orthodox church and I attended my first divine liturgy, which was a really, um, earth shattering experience for me. And, uh, certain things that I encountered in the context of the church, the divine liturgy, the, the mother of God as not just like a theological concept or this big taboo 
or you know all these different things that she can be for so many people but just as like a, a, a living person who is a part of this community of faith um, and who really uh, cared about me and about my family um, all those things what I what I found was that even though I hadn't had any of the right kind of formation to prepare me for them that still somehow a lot of the ground work had already been done um, that the 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 soil one could say had been prepared yeah and my my unfolding experience and realization since then has been that most of that work was done by reading Tolkien as a kid mm -hmm. um, and studying Tolkien as an adult. Um, Tolkien, Lewis, but primarily Tolkien. And so the the impetus, the genesis of this two-part keynote was to essentially begin to pay that debt. Um, so I'm, I, I believe gratitude is not just important, but it's actually essential for sanity, for life. <laughs> and uh, and so I wanted to I wanted to show show my deep gratitude to Tolkien, um, uh, and explain what it was about reading Tolkien that prepared me. So when I attended the my first divine liturgy. There's a lot of stuff I didn't know. Um, and I, have you ever been to like an Eastern Rite liturgy, like a Catholic church, a Byzantine Catholic church, no, or Orthodox I church? I, actually, I have not. Um, I attend the. Um, I mean, it's not the same, but um, the traditional Latin Mass, like the extraordinary yes. form Mass. Um, yes. That's I, I. I grew up in the English form. Um, and, oh. Uh, in the in the ordinary. No, or, no, 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 uh, no, 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 the, um, okay, not, not English, English, no, not like the ordinary, English. I got yeah, it. I got like it. the English okay. mass, um, like it. after the second Vatican council, um, and when we started going, when I started going back to church, uh, my in-laws were very devout Catholics, um, they discovered the traditional Latin mass and we started going and my first mass was like a three hour long, um, Dvorak mass. It was beautiful, but. I'm like, is this what we're gonna do now? I just got used to going to this this the mass of my childhood, you know. Is this are we gonna go to three hour long masses? Every, and because uh, the Kyrie was about 15 minutes long, uh, it was beautiful. But um, yeah, we got used to that. So I'm I'm I've never I've never been to an Eastern liturgy, but I have the Western I don't yeah. equivalent. I don't know if that's the right. Yeah, word, no, I, I got gotcha, you. I gotcha. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. No, I'm picking up what you're putting down. Mm -hmm. Um. Uh. Actually, our normal our normal Sunday morning divine liturgy is about two and a half hours. Wow! Oh, dang! <laughs> yeah, and, and that's that's long even by, you know, they, there are other Orthodox parishes that do it faster. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, and of course, we, yeah, it's even it's great. I love <laughs> so it. So you're just much, like but, you're a baby. You're just a big baby. You went to one three hour mass. And now you. <laughs> oh, no, I didn't mean that at all. I didn't. I, when you said three hour mass, I was like, right on. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's normal. It's perfectly normal. Yeah, it's like that sounds. Sounds legit. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so the 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 divine liturgy uh, in the Eastern right is is uh, really disorienting if you have never seen it before, and especially like if you're coming from, you know, basically being raised by a bunch of Baptists and Methodists, right? <laughs> right. Uh, because because like it's long, everything is sung. Mm -hmm. Nobody got up there to say, "Hey, welcome to First Baptist Church today. We're so <laughs> glad that you're here. Yeah. Would you please put a lot of visitor card and everything?" You just like walk in, and people are already like re chanting prayers, mm -hmm. and then and then it just like the stream just keeps going. And at no point 
do they, you know, what, as they move from like, you know, hours to divine liturgy, except like at no point is there any stoppage. Like, like the, 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 the river just keeps going yeah. and you just kind of jump in and you try to hold on. <clears throat> and the priest, you know, he's like, we keep saying, Lord have mercy. And, and uh, he's popping in and out of these doors. Why are there doors there? Like what's going on? And the thing is like, I had read about the liturgy before attending it. And so I thought I really already knew what was going to happen and yeah. like understood all the parts and things like this, but like reading about things and then doing them are just two different things. Yep. Uh, but amidst all of that bewilderment and bewilderment, I had a deep, conviction a deep sense that sort of gradually filled up my my awareness as i was attending that the service and that sense was this is the way everything is mm-hmm. like i'm seeing the shape of everything that the the sort of the structure of the cosmos the structure of history all these things is deeply present and it is some, in some way, sort of interior to the liturgy. Like the liturgy is the real thing, and human history and the cosmos and your soul. Those things are those are sort of like things about the liturgy, hmm. right? And so this is just a sense that I had coming away. Um, it was this really profound kind of cosmic moment. Mm-hmm. And then much later on, I read Saint Maximus the Confessor. And his ecclesial mystagogy. So Saint Maximus is kind of probably the most difficult church father to read, mm-hmm. um, and uh, his stuff is stuff is really heavy. It's so good. Um, and in the ecclesial mystagogy, what he try what he basically does is he introduces two ideas. One is that, and I would say actually, I, I what I end up talking about a lot on podcasts like these. Um, is is you know what what's the medieval mindset and what about it is worth recovering right and I if I had to say like there's one one idea that if you could just like recover this one idea and really fully live out its implications that you'd you'd have gone eighty percent of the way to recovering what it means to be a human being and that idea is man as microcosm. Mm-hmm. So microcosm as in a small, you know, the cosmos, it's like the universe. Um, so, so every human being is, is, is the entire universe playing out on a fractal pattern. Right. So what St. Maximus the Confessor does and other early church fathers like St. Ephraim the Syrian, um, and these are both fathers who are really big in the Eastern tradition, and I think most Western Christians uh are maybe less aware of them. Um, although now it's much easier than it's ever been to, to kind of like go out and, and educate yeah. yourself about this stuff because there's so many great translations. You know, I can't read St. Maximus's Greek. Um, I can, I can sort of barely get along with like biblical Greek, but I, I definitely can't read St. Maximus's Greek. Uh, but there are lots of good English translations out there. So the idea that you find is this idea that the way that a church is laid out, so you you attend a, a, a traditional church. So yeah. Yeah. my assumption is you probably have very traditional architecture, okay? Because that yeah. tends to be how that goes, right? So in the in traditional church architecture, you have the narthex, or like the sometimes it's called the vestibule. Mm-hmm. It's a nice Latin word, vestibule. <laughs> but the narthex means like porch. 
Um, so you have the, the, the narthex or the vestibule, and then moving in, you have the nave. And the nave is where the people of God stand, right? The nows, the, 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 the boat, the ark of salvation, right? Right. right. And then you have the, the, what in the East we call the altar, right? Or the, uh, what you guys would call the sanctuary, yeah. which is, I, I assume you, you probably have like a communion rail, right? Yep. yep. So it's, it's the space beyond that communion rail. Uh, which we even like the Baptist churches I grew up in had that communion rail. It's funny. It's like really, there's, yeah. There's just certain things you can't uh, you can't really, um, you know, there, there there's certain like intuitions, right? One intuition is not everybody should be on stage, right? <laughs> even even yeah. in a mega church, yeah. right? Like you're you're the uh, imagine the most bland, you know, evangelical mega church, right? right. Even in that experience there's going to be a kind of, there's going to be a buffer between the people who are on stage and the people the you know, the audience. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so, uh, so the sanctuary, right. Is, is basically, um, that tripartite layout corresponds to the same layout in the old Testament tabernacle, Mm -hmm. right. Which is remember is based on the divine pattern that Moses saw the heavenly sanctuary. And then he was commanded to build an earthly sanctuary on that same pattern so that the worship of earth could participate in the liturgy of heaven. Mm-hmm. So he builds that tripartite structure into the tabernacle. And we preserved it in the Christian church today. What these church fathers write about, what St. Maximus writes about, is that also this this strike this structure also corresponds to um, your soul or, or the human person in general, right? So you have the body, um, your body, which corresponds to the narthex, right? The narthex is the part of the church that let you could say it like it's the part that anyone can interact with. It's it's like the front porch of your house, mm-hmm. right? Anyone can. Anyone can talk to me on my front porch, right? Salesmen and and you know, you know, people canvassing the neighborhood for political things and whatever. I don't know. People don't actually come to your door anymore since COVID. But, but you know, the the idea is that that uh, basically anybody can interact with you on your porch, right? But then only certain people get invited into your living room, right? Uh, and that the living room, you know, what? So that's the soul. That's the nave, right? You would say this is your interior life, your mind, your will, your emotions. But then there's that even deeper level than that, right? The bridal chamber, right? The bedroom. There's 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 like a very limited number of people who get invited back to my bedroom. Mm-hmm. You know, which is it's basically no one, right? You know, because <laughs> that's that's our room, right? Uh, right. Uh, for me and my wife, and uh, it's 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 always like a little weird to have like even if there's somebody back there like doing some work on the flooring or something like that it feels a little weird to have somebody else in your bedroom right Mm -hmm. so uh so this is the this is the the sanctuary the altar right in in the in the church but it also corresponds to your this is a nice greek word your noose Mm -hmm. right your noose uh uh which is like your say like your heart or your inner mind um there's actually a lot of very complicated technical language the fathers used to talk about this. I'm not going to try to bring that in at this stage, but let's just say, let's just say it's the it's the interior 
uh, is the is the the hidden man of the heart that Saint Peter talks about. Um, that that your 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 really true inner self that is actually beyond your mind, right? So, a mentally impaired person is still a full human being, right? Right. Somebody who's been in a terrible accident has brain damage, or somebody that has, let's say, maybe a disability that causes it to be makes it very hard for them to feel or process emotion mm-hmm. right that person can still know and come into contact with god because they have an inner person they have a noose which is like the altar upon which worship is actually made to god so when saint paul says your body is the temple of the holy spirit he's not just saying so don't get tattoos kids <laughs> um, which is probably how you heard that growing up. <laughs> right, um, yes. Uh, but what he's saying is... You won't put gra- graffiti is, on your temple, you know? Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> what he's saying is that you have this structure, you have the same structure as a temple. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's this right in the Bible. And so... Um, and this, this leads to all kinds of really interesting things. Um, and you could, just, you could just meditate on and talk about the implication of this understanding for years and years and years of your life because um, if you really start to understand this stuff then certain parts of scripture for instance saint paul says don't be conformed to the world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind and then he says that we're supposed to offer ourselves up um, as a spiritual or a noetic sacrifice mm-hmm. to god and the way that the fathers read this is that it's is that 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 noetic sacrifice that spiritual sacrifice is both the sacrifice of the eucharist which we offer to god um but it is also the worship the prayer that we offer up to god on uh it in our in the altar that is within us as human beings and uh, so saint isaac the syrian who's one of my favorite probably my favorite of the ascetic fathers um he says that when you have distracting thoughts in prayer, that that is like offering up, that's the equivalent of offering up unclean sacrifice to God. Hmm. <laughs> um, like people get killed for that stuff in the Bible, right? Yeah. You know, and what, what can you say to that, right? Except Lord have mercy. <laughs> so this is, this is the, 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 the kind of the structure of the human person, right? And so that's the first part of St. Maximus's argument is man is microcosm. In other words, um, so, so the structure of a, of a human being is the same as the structure of the church, mm-hmm. but it's also the same as the structure of the universe, right? The universe has a, a narthex, which is the, uh, which is the physical realm. Uh, you could say like the material world, the things that, that, you know, the things that you can see, touch, taste, smell, measure, detect with an X-ray machine or whatever. Right. Um, so it has a material world and then it has, let's say an unseen realm. And this is the realm of like subtle bodies, uh, the, the kinds of bodies that the, the angels have, Mm -hmm. right. So it's an unseen realm of spiritual powers, but then there's actually also, and that corresponds to the nave, but there's actually also a level beyond that. Mm -hmm. Um, because of course God is, God is as, you know, there's God is infinite, right? He's, he's as far, beyond the angels as he is beyond us, mm-hmm. right? Syria, again, he says that even the, the experience that the angels have worshiping God in paradise is still a condescension to their 
capacity to understand him. Wow. Yeah. Which is so much greater than ours, but is also not even a drop in the bucket. Right. Have you? So. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> well, so anyway, so that's, that's the first half of St. Maxim's interject. And then I'll get to the second part. And this is where Tolkien comes okay, in. Okay. I'm going to, so. have you ever read, um, Gene Wolfe at all? Have you read him? I haven't. It's on my list, but I, I haven't gotten okay. to it yet. Um, he has, uh, one of his, his duology, the wizard Knight. I don't want to say anything about it cause I don't want to spoil it. Um, but I would read that and let me know what you think. Um, because it, it, we'll come back and talk about it. Yeah. Cause I, every, whenever I read it, I, I just think, um, say Maximus, the confessor, you know, um, man is microcosm. And yeah, yeah so I would, that's all I'm going to cool. say about it. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I'll do a future episode. I'm saying this now. I think I'll do a future episode on the Wizard Knight. Um, so I, it's now official, I guess. Awesome. awesome. Yeah, so, it's on the internet now. It's, it's on the internet perfect. now. That means it's true and it's going to happen. And <laughs> right, that is what the internet means. Yes. Um, so the, the second the second part of Saint Maximus's kind of thesis is that basically you could say like what the structure of the church building does in space. Right, the way that it images the cosmos, to the point that he says the cosmos is a human being, and every human being is a cosmos. Mm. You know, um, and then he says the same thing about the Bible, and he says that you know the Bible is a human being. Right, the Bible also has these three le- uh, levels. Right, yeah. um, there's the 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 body or the narthex of the of the scriptures, which is just the literal meaning on the page. Right. Uh, which most of us have enough trouble just like getting that <laughs> digested, right? right? But then there are like these further senses as you move in, and um, uh, so 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 you could say like what the church building is to the universe, to the the created order, the liturgy is to time, and so what he does then is he lays out, and of course he's. Uh, he's an Eastern right Christian. Uh, this is before the Great Schism. So Saint Maximus the Confessor is uh, is a saint in yep. the Roman Catholic Church as well. Um, uh, but but he is a he's an Eastern right Christian, and so the liturgy he describes is is uh, is is that liturgy. Mm-hmm. However, you can take these principles. In fact, there are lots of Western authors who do the same sort of thing, and they apply it to the like the the Latin Mass. Right. So you can go out and find like. There are a lot of medieval authors that do that sort of thing. This is a this is like a sort of a universally Christian way to to understand the liturgy. And so, um, what he basically does is he takes each moment of the liturgy, and uh, he corresponds it to like three or four different, let's say, nested stories. Let's call them stories. Um, three or four different kinds of nested stories. So you have a story within a story within a story. And I only, uh, I only address the first two because the first two is as far as my understanding goes. Hmm. Uh, you get beyond that and St. Maximus gets into things that I literally can't imagine what he's describing because my spiritual experience is so pathetic. It's so limited. I mean, I'm not complaining about the grace which I've been given, which is really tremendous and much more than I uh, deserve. But also like, it's important for a man to know his limitations. And, <laughs> and there, I get to some of these parts and say Maximus, and I'm like, well, I, I have no idea what you're describing. I don't know what that is like at all. Hmm. Um, and that's okay. That's okay. You know, I'm, you know, I, uh, 
uh, I, I, have, I have zero interest in a religion that where I where I just understand everything. Um, <laughs> good point. Yes, but what good would that be? Uh, so, so basically, you say there's like a liturgical moment, and then that corresponds to a symbolic moment, um, and then uh, in in salvation history. So, like in other words, a moment in the history of the world. For instance, the dismissal of the catechumens. Um, so, you guys. When you guys talk about liturgy, you usually mm -hmm. divide it into like liturgy of the word, liturgy yeah. of the sacrament, uh, or we use the terminology liturgy of the catechumens, liturgy of the faithful. But it's that same yeah, kind of division, it's, right? Yeah, now. it's very similar. Yeah, yeah mass, yeah. Of, the, a, mass of the catechumens, mass of the mass of the faithful, in the in the right, exactly, traditional. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. 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 Exactly that. Right. So so we do that too. So there there's a there's a moment in the Eastern Church where they actually sort of liturgically chase the catechumens out of the church. <laughs> now nobody actually like kicks them out, and makes them leave now. Although some churches are reviving the ancient practice of of actually that's when they leave to go do their catechesis oh, while the okay. while the while the the sacramental portion of the service begins, which I actually really like. I'm yeah. a big fan of I'm a big fan of that concept. But in any case, um um uh, the 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 liturgy of the 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 dismissal of the catechumens. So there's a closing of the doors, the holy doors, in front of the sanctuary. So we have like a big iconostasis. So the holy doors close in front of the sanctuary, and the catechumens are dismissed. And the moment in the history of the world and the history of salvation that this corresponds to is the last judgment, hmm. right? Where those who are worthy pass on into the heavenly places, and then everyone else is set out now if you if you have ever been a catechumen as i have this is really rough mm, like for yeah. first of all like being like oh so i'm not worthy i get sent out into the you know utter outer darkness or whatever you know it's not quite that bad but i will say there is a feeling of judgment um not in a not in a you know not in a despondent way like i'm gonna be careful about how i say these things um but th but there is definitely the sense of longing and uh you know that that uh, there's 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 definitely a we should always have a little bit of of uh fear and in the orthodox church we express this liturgically during holy week that we are going to be one of the one of the maidens who didn't fill their lamp with oil yeah, yeah. and we're going to be we're going to be you know we're going to think we're we're gonna think we're thinking we're gonna skate by, and, and then we're gonna show up, and, the, and and we're not gonna have a wedding garment, right? right. Um, we we need to be, um, you know, not not live in terror or fear or anything like that, and I, and I don't uh, live that way, but um, but but also like we need to we need to like, you know, but you you have to have the other thing too, otherwise you're you have cheap grace mm -hmm. and things become really imbalanced, right? So there is definitely a feeling there that like of, of you know it, it as a catechumen it feels very last judgmenty let's just say <laughs> uh, but then but then there's also a way that this corresponds in your own mystical ascent in the in other words the the movement of the human heart in the life of virtue these are the things that we're this is the progression we're supposed to always be yep. on as a christian right which is that you pass from material things to what St. Maximus calls intelligible things, we could say spiritual things, in the hiddenness of God. And we finally dismiss and reject our deceitful sense perceptions, like all of the idols that we create in our minds about who God is, 
uh, to finally dismiss those things and to begin to enter into the knowledge of knowing him who he really, uh, as who he really is. So what's happening in the liturgy is at these different moments that correspond to these different things, all of these things are happening at the same time. You are coming into contact with a moment in eternity, which is simultaneously, it's your... It's, it's a moment in the history of the entire world that everyone will experience if they have not already, right? But it's also a moment in your personal spiritual development, which in the case of something like communion, right, being transformed by grace and participation into to become similar to the one who is good as the cause of everything that is good. That's what St. Maximus says. Uh, to be lacking in nothing, to be even be able to be called gods by adoption. Again, St. Maximus's words, mm-hmm. right? That is not something which, uh, which I am currently embodying in the world, <laughs> right? Um, uh, but when I take communion in liturgy, it's already happening to me. Mm-hmm. So... So, so you see, so there's like, so the idea is like you have these, there's like a, there's like a big narrative that everybody's a part of, but then there's also like my personal narrative and it's actually all, it's actually, it's wrong to think that those are separate stories. They're actually just layers. Right. And then again, St. Maximus talks about levels that go even higher than this. Mm-hmm. Um, so in other words, St. Maximus, if, if we're going to use our current terminology, St. Maximus uses the, uh, the idea of the liturgy as, as a, um, a narrative in which we participate. Um, and it's actually many nested narratives. Now, uh, when I read this, going back to that moment in my first divine liturgy, when all of that stuff sort of like, I had all these, I had this intuition and everything started to click into place. Right when I read St. Maximus, everything started to click into place. And then I realized, actually, this is how Tolkien describes the way that storytelling works. So I went back to Tolkien's essay on fairy stories, which is uh, simultaneously, um, I go back and forth on whether it's his most brilliant thing that he wrote or like the worst thing that he wrote. Um, it's, <laughs> I have a really complicated relationship with that essay because it's so wonderful, but also like it's, uh, it's really rambly uh, in a lot of places and, and like, there are whole parts of the essay that unless you know that the other authors like who are, who are not like fun authors, they're like boring, dusty Oxford dons. Like, unless you know the other like scholars that he's responding to, especially in the early part of that essay, then, then like the whole, it's like, why are we even talking about this? Mm -hmm. Like um, Tolkien's read on some of this stuff has been, became so dominant that we all sort of take it for granted now. And we don't realize how, uh, how much he was pushing, the boundaries of what people thought about stories and storytelling uh, back in his day. Yeah, yeah. So all that to say, Tolkien describes what he calls fairy and drama, which is the idea of finding yourself in a dream that another mind is weaving. In other words, to find yourself in a story that another mind is telling. And of course, there's this wonderful moment uh, with Sam on the, the stair of Kirith Ungol, when uh, and it's it's uh, one of the most profound moments of hope in the Lord of the Rings, where he's he's looking up at the star Arendil, um, which uh, to, uh, yesterday yesterday, so the, the original Arendil is John the Baptist, 
um, hey, Randall is a name for John the Baptist in, uh, in uh, Old English. <laughs> And and, uh, right. <laughs> and 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 also the planet Venus and like you can there's a whole thing there, but uh, of course Tolkien had a great devotion to Saint John the Baptist. Um, so so you have uh, you have uh, so you know, I, I say all this to say yesterday was the feast of the conception of Saint John the Baptist um, on our calendar. So, um, but he looks up at the star Arendel which is burning with the light of the last of the Silmarils. And the file of Galadriel that Frodo is carrying. Yeah, he's talking about he's talking about um, he's talking about the story of Baron and Luthien and, and all the things that they must have thought and experienced and 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 you know, when you're in a story, you don't think it's ever gonna end and all this different stuff. And he says, But hey, that Silmaril that they stole from Morgoth, that's the same one that's up there in that star I'm looking at right now. And that's the same light that's in this file that Galadriel gave us. And then he realizes he has this moment where like all these connections just kind of snap together. And he realizes, he says, we're in the same story after all, Mr. Frodo. And that, that, that moment of realizing that your personal story is not something that's separate from the cosmic story of salvation that we live out in the, in the liturgical year and in every single divine liturgy, right? That there's sort of this nested fractal nature to reality. Um, that realization is something Tolkien goes back to over and over and over again. So a lot of my talks were just about the way that they're just about the ways that, that Tolkien does this. Right. Um, and that, and what's really interesting is that he shows us lots of good examples of it, but he also shows us some bad examples. So there's a, um, there's a, uh, there's an author named, um, uh, Jason Crawford who recently published an article named, uh, uh called the trouble with reenchantment. And what Crawford talks about in that article is, um, he, he criticizes the sort of, let's say, re-enchantment movement. So that, that, that phrase, re-enchantment, I think originates with Charles Taylor's A Secular Age, which is a really important book. Yeah, if, I think if, if you haven't read it, if people haven't read it, it's a long book. It's like 700 pages. It's a heavy book. It's not easy reading. But you should read it twice a year for like 10 years. <laughs> um I just finished rereading it, and it's also fresh on my mind, and it's so good. Yeah, oh, that's on gosh. my list too. I haven't read that one, but um, yeah. I think that is where, you know, yeah. with my limited knowledge of it, I think that is where it originates from, or at least it was made popular by that book. Right, um, right. So, so uh, there've been like tons of books about reenchantment since then, and one of the things that uh, Crawford points out, which you have, we talked about this before you hit record, is this fact that actually. Uh, everyone talks about like wanting re-enchantment. They sort of want the magic to come back, but then also we're not really willing to embrace all the things that that would mean. <laughs> yeah. All right. the spiritual, all the implications right. of that. <laughs> well, so basically yeah. my, my thesis and my belief for quite some time is that the magic is coming back, whether or not we want it to be like, we have this, this structure, this superstructure of modernity that we built that allowed us to get away from those things and pursue things like, moral improvement, social reform, all this stuff. 
some of it good, um, a lot of it good, and then you know obviously a lot of it horrible. Um, a lot of a lot of us to pursue those things basically on our own steam, and we thought we'd outgrow the angels, right? Not just the good angels, <laughs> um, but also the ones that you know gave us all the technology we weren't supposed to have. Um, and, and we thought we'd outgrown these things, and then, and now we've sort of come to the end of our of that rope. We're running out of steam. The superstructure is collapsing, and the magic is coming back. Um, I spend a lot of time talking with people these days who are coming to the Orthodox Church or returning to the Christian faith, who have had real tangible encounters with the demonic. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and, uh, well, yeah, I'm really sorry if people on your podcast were like, well, I tuned in to hear about fairies and all I've heard about is, you know, the <laughs> liturgy and now demons, like what's going on. Um, but, but here's the thing, here's the thing. Um, Tolkien, what Tolkien shows us is that this, this experience of, of being trapped in somebody like caught up in somebody else's story is not always nice. Uh, because Tolkien actually gives us several examples, and I, I talk about a couple in the paper, but he gives us several examples of people who got caught up in, let's call them diabolical dramas, right? Not just wandering into a dream some other mind is weaving, but actually caught up in a nightmare that's, that you've been trapped in. And, uh, and, and uh, it's really terrifying. And, but they're, they're also like really mundane ways, like really banal ways. Like the news cycle is that kind of thing, mm-hmm. right? Even, even to the way that the news cycle, right? The news cycle is, so, so like the, the Christian experience of time is linear and cyclical all at the same time, yeah. right? So, so you're sort of constantly spiraling towards eternity, right? So in our day, um, if you're a traditional Christian, you might pray the hours, right? Um, you might you might do you know some kind of way of marking at the very least like morning and evening prayers or some way of marking mm-hmm. liturgical hours. But certainly in a monastery or you know a, a cathedral like like the one I attend, you know where where the 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 hourly services, matins and vespers, things like this are still like people come together and, and, and pray them. So there's that cycle, and then there's the cycle of the week. Each day of the week in the Eastern Church is dedicated to a different commemoration like so monday is always the holy angels tuesday is always the forerunner mm-hmm. wednesday is always the cross thursday is the apostles and saint nicholas and so on in addition to like whatever saints of the day there might be right so there's so there's the the daily cycle of time the weekly cycle of time and then of course you get the liturgical cycle of of the year right the news is a cycle Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. We talk about like a 24 hour news cycle or now it's like a, you know, 50 minute news cycle or whatever. But right. But the news presents to us and I'm not picking on right wing or left wing because both sides are frankly horrifyingly guilty of this, <laughs> um, of, of basically presenting a narrative, a nightmare into which people get caught. Oh, yeah. And they get stuck. They get stuck in the cyclical anti-liturgy of trauma yep. and hate and um yeah there are lots of other there are lots of other examples of this in our world 
Um, and so I say all of this to say, I didn't read St. Maximus first. Um, I didn't read St. Maximus when I was nine years old. I read <laughs> The Lord of the Rings when I was nine years old. Mm-hmm. Right? And the effect that it had was to prepare the soil, yep. prime the pump, lay all the foundation that needed to be laid so that when I came to the liturgical cycle and the, the liturgical year and the experience of the liturgy and all these different things, um, I was, I was ready, right. To, to, to start, to start that journey. And as I said, at the end of the day, this is, this is about paying my debts. Right. And so this is my basic belief is that we are at a particular point in time where the magic is coming back and our appetites need to be formed for the right kind of stuff. Yeah. The good stories yeah. will do that. The bad stories will prepare us for slavery. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so in your essay, you've mentioned that, you know, a re-enchantment is coming back, but it's going to be messier than we think. Is that because the the demonic is going to emerge as well as the angelic, I yeah. guess, to put it? Uh, and, it and it already is. Um, yeah. I mean, I can see that, too. Uh, as, a, big, a big thing right now, and I get a weird number of questions about this stuff. Uh since I started doing the videos with Pajot, but um, I don't know why people ask me. Like, <laughs> um, But uh, a big thing right now is the use of psychedelics. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, a yeah. use of psychedelics dabbling in the occult, um, you know, hermeticism, tarot, all these different mm -hmm. things. Like this, this is a, I mean, this is a really big draw for a lot of people. Um, and I know people who, um, have gotten into this stuff and 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 are having like an who are, who are re-entering the enchanted world in a really awful way yeah like they are coming into contact with angels but they're not the good angels <laughs> right i mean i always think of it like you're using these it's like you're sneaking into a foreign country right and you don't have uh, the prop, yeah. you don't have the proper paperwork yeah. with you you're not because if you do it properly you're, you'll be under the authority of Christ, right? Right. And you're there, like, at, I don't know, if his, his, his ambassador or something. You know, you're there under his authority and his protection. But if you're using these, these ways to cheat, you know, to sneak in, you don't have that protection, right? So, like, you know, psychedelics, it's, yeah, they're becoming way more popular <laughs> because people yeah. want to escape from modernity, which is flat and materialistic and you know we shouldn't we shouldn't want modernity as it stands right now and so you can right. kind of understand why people would jump to these 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 ways of you know communing with unclean spirits and, and things father father andrew said the other day father Stephen david is the co-host of the Amos school podcast and also the host of just like a million other things on ancient faith radio and he said and i don't remember now where this conversation what oh no it was in a, his recent interview with jonathan pajot on the symbolic world that came out like last week so people mm -hmm. people can, can go listen to that um he said you know 
And I thought this is a wonderful point. I'd never thought about this before. He said, the, 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 you know, like, you know, people have used, let's say, chemical means or pharmaceutical means, right? Pharmacon, right? In Greek, means both magic and witchcraft, but also drugs mm-hmm. and potions, because it's the same thing. And he says, uh, you know, like back then, they, I mean, the people were using this stuff. People have always been using this stuff to try to, you know, steal fire from the gods or whatever you want to call it. But um, the the problem is we don't even have like the the good sense of pagans who who definitely knew this stuff worked, but also that it wasn't for everyone. You know, like (laughs) like that there there had to be like a preparation, a structure and preparation, all these different things. Now it's still not good. You still should not be communing with demons, but also. Um, it wasn't just Joe Schmo, you know, it wasn't just the random, right. random right. guy. It was usually the, the priest or right. shaman or whatever, somebody who right. would, I mean, it's not, none of it's as good, but it like, at least it's just like one person doing it right. as opposed and, to and just someone like, picking it up even, and doing it. We don't even have the good sense of pagans like right. at this point. And it's going to, it's like kids it's, with, with, it's with fire and it's going to get uglier, I think. Yeah. It's like, we, we discover all these things and we don't. We don't know how, with not even the spiritual stuff, like all this technology that we get, you know, we don't know how to use any of it properly. <laughs> you know, it just control, it like consumes us instead of us consuming it. You know, yep. it, especially with like, I mean, this is a cliche at this point, but like social media and um, the just the news, like you mentioned, but all of these other things, like um, this is kind of off topic, but it, it's, it's related, like CRISPR technology, you know, like the gene editing technology yeah. stuff like that where it's yeah. like okay well we're gonna start creating monsters now and it's just kind of inevitable yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, like uh what do you people think is going to happen like you really yeah it's, yeah it's crazy <laughs> yeah oh no, there's a really mean, quick way to edit topic. it's like oh well great uh, this isn't have we seen jurassic park have we watched these right. movies i mean these, <laughs> it's not like we weren't warned i guess i don't know yeah, that's the thing. Like, I don't really think it's off topic because it's it's um man. I don't know how weird I'm allowed to get on other people's podcasts. Get weird, like, man. Just do it. Okay, 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 okay. So, 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 uh, in the book of Enoch, which is a pretty important text in uh, the Christian tradition in general, mm-hmm. even though it's not part of the Holy Scriptures unless you're Ethiopian. Um, and, uh, the, the, the Ethiopians have like the super duper director's cut version of the Bible. Like they just have like all that stuff. <laughs> uh, but in the book of, in the book of Enoch, and, and this is also like, you find this in the early church fathers, uh, for whom Enoch was a really important text. Um, of course Enoch is quoted by some of the epistles. So yeah. Um, mm. but in the book of Enoch, uh, we're told that, you know, that these early, um, and this is, I mean, if you, you, you're a Lord of Spirits listener, so you know some of this already, right? Mm. Uh, but we're told, we're told that these, these early leaps forward in technology were given to mankind by fallen angels in exchange right. for worship. Right. Right. Yeah. Such early leaps in technology as the making of weapons, the arts of seduction, mm-hmm. the use of drugs, abortion. Yeah. These are things that, according to these ancient texts, were taught to human beings by demons. Right. Now, 
people can decide they don't want to believe that. But I was listening to a podcast just the other day where somebody was saying, oh, yeah, they thought all these early technological advances came from demons, but actually they came from humans expanding their consciousness by using psychedelics. And I'm like, bro. <laughs> How do you think they got to catch them? <laughs> you said the same thing. Right. You know? So so this is like... <laughs> Maybe I should change so the name of the podcast to I Might Believe in the Book of Enoch. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I think that's the Lord of Spirits, though. I think that's already their thing. Yeah. Um, it's, it's very but, interesting, yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, so here's the thing. I might believe in fairies. Like, I actually, there's sort of a running joke. I, I go out to Ikta Institute once a year mm-hmm. the and do... Bookstore? Uh, bookstore yeah. Institute. I'm going in October, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, where do you live? I Minnesota. Minnesota. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a long way. You can still come. You can still come <laughs> to Kansas. I've, I've been thinking about it. I... Yeah, I, I'll, I'll think about it. I kind of want to. That'd, that'd be super rad. That'd be really cool. Um, it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm going to be talking about like the Holy Grail and yeah. all kinds of fun stuff. It's going to be really cool. But um, but there's a sort of a running joke there because like one night I was there and it was very late, and uh, um, you know, on their, at their anniversary thing, like the bookstore, they have they have just like free wine, <laughs> you know, which is a great way to get people to buy books. And you know how many books. I'll buy after like a couple of glasses of wine, all the books, I'll buy all the books. Um, and so, and so like it was late, we were still, you know, there's a few hangers on, we're kind of hanging around and everything. And somebody had a fairy question and Warren, who's the bookstore owner said, you should ask Richard that question. <laughs> and so like on the spot there, like does Richard Rowland believe in fairies? Like, you know, at like 10 o'clock at night and everything. So it's sort of a running joke. Every time I go back to uh, eight day, people always bring me like fairy books. Yeah. And, and we end up talking about fairies late in the night. So anyway, you should come. It, it, it would definitely be your thing. That sounds great. But, um, but, uh, but here's the thing. I might believe in fairies, but I definitely believe in demons. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> so, so here's the thing, like, uh, when we're looking at all these leap forwards in technology and all that stuff is happening right at the same time, like the intelligentsia used to be like the, you know, intellectual dark web or something now, yeah. but now that's like really mainstream people, like more people listen to Joe Rogan than probably, probably any other broadcaster right now. Right. Um, uh, when you've got like really mainstream you know, thought leaders and things like that actively advocating uh, for the use of psychedelics yes, at the same time that we're having all these jump forwards of technology. I'm just like, ah, I don't like this. Yeah. I've read this story before. I know how this ends. Last time this happened, we got a flood. <laughs> yeah, there wouldn't be a flood the next time. You know? Yeah, I know. What, yeah, Joe Rogan, he's huge into psychedelics, isn't he? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And even guys like Jordan Peterson who, you know. Yeah. Um, has has been responsible for bringing a lot of people to the Orthodox Church, you know, like yeah. he's and the and the Catholic Church too, honestly. Yeah, um, yeah, 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 right. No, um, it's it's because I know Jordan Peterson. Um, this is all public. He's talked about this. Um, I don't know if he still does it, but he, I think he used to do psychedelics with a uh, Native American tribe, right? Because something like that. I'd, I think so. I, I don't know so much about that. I know that he's had people on his podcast recently talking about it again. Yeah. So. Yeah. I know. I don't know. He should know better. Um. <laughs> yeah. Well. Um, 
I'm not saying, I don't know if he promotes, I don't think he promotes it or not, but I I don't know. Yeah, I I shouldn't Um, say that. I should, I should be more charitable. I don't, I don't actually know. I'll just say that right now. I I have no idea. So (laughs) if if he, what he he says about it. It's definitely out there and it's definitely a thing that, I mean, people are toying with like some really dangerous stuff, you know, it's like giving a six-year-old the keys to the Corvette. You know, um, <laughs> I feel like that'd be safer than what people are doing. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But okay, I didn't yeah. say this, but the Corvette's made out of dynamite. There, yeah. There you so, go. Yeah. yeah. It's like um, got a bomb under it. It'll blow up when it hits yeah. 55 miles an hour. So, um, so yeah, yeah, all of this stuff is, all this stuff is, is very interconnected. And so what I'm, what I'm really about right now, this is why like, you know, it took me a couple of weeks to finally get around to sitting down and listening to your show. Mm-hmm. But the thing that I'm really about right now is is saying, okay, how do we, you know, there's a, there are two ways to approach this. One would be to say, we've got to, we've got to build our armor up. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that would be just like, you know, turtling up and figuring out like, well, how do I shelter myself or my kids from this stuff? Right. And there always has to be some degree of that. Um, It would be insane to give my small children you know, unfettered access to just everything that's happening in the world right now. Yeah. But also in a long-term thing, like if I'm not just interested in, uh, hunkering down, right. But I'm interested in creating culture, mm-hmm. um, and creating something that's going to last. And ultimately at the end of the day, the thing I'm most interested in is, is making saints. Yeah. Uh, I'm actually super not interested <laughs> in in things that don't like approaches that like don't lead to sainthood and I, i've gotten you know pushback from a couple of people who listen to them in school they're like okay well i really like it but you know yeah, i mean you guys are pretty christian and first of all i'm like well dude it's it says tolkien and orthodox christianity on the label <laughs> like if i don't do some orthodox christianity it's going to be false advertising but also also the reason at the end of the day it's important for me to tie this stuff back it's not because i feel like oh I've got to, I've got to like, you know, crowbar Jesus into this story so that I, I can justify it to myself. Right. I have no guilt associated with reading good fantasy literature. Right. Like there's, there's no self justification needed, uh, in my mind, but it's more, it's more that there is a tendency though. in some, some Christians for sure. And that was me a little while ago trying to figure out, okay, is this stuff like what, like what, utility is it to me or you know how can i fit this in and after yeah. listening to you guys a lot and um yeah. just kind of maturing a little bit on my own yeah. um it's kind of like okay first of all just kind of group like don't be so full of yourself that you think that you know <laughs> that everything you do is going to be perfect and amazing you know like yes that's kind of and then i'm like well when you read when you start like learning about folklore and like especially in like I'm not saying the Bible's folklore or anything, but when you start learning about the ancient cultures and like what the Bible's actually saying a lot of the time, you yeah. go, Oh, well then Tolkien fits very, very well. <laughs> with right, this. right, 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 right. <laughs> yeah. So I, the, the, the thing that I'm really interested in is, is, you know, I, I want to raise kids who are saints. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I want them to pray for me. I want them to, to get married and have lots of children or go into monasteries and pray for my soul. Um, and, and so the, the question is like, so, you know, you can't do that just by turtling down, but what you actually have to do is to form the appetite of the soul. 
So this is where the idea of the sacramental imagination comes in, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of what my my current book project is about. Um, this comes this definition comes from uh, an author named Heather Ward, who's written about George MacDonald, who's another author I really love. Um, she says that we can regard fi- Christian fantasy writing as the outcome of an imagination that works in sacramental terms, seeing the material world as participant in and mediator of the divine. Okay, so the idea, uh, why is it a sacramental imagination, right? In this case, what does imagination mean? Imagination means um, it's something like uh, what... Something like what Charles Taylor, uh, Charles Taylor doesn't use like the word worldview. I also don't like the word wor- worldview because the worldview sort of posits that I can like pick and choose the things that I believe. Mm. And actually you can't. Yeah. Right. You're, you're only capable of believing the things that you, let's say you have the mental tools and furniture. Right. And you're it, like to, to, to make it even possible for you to conceive of of a world where that's the case. And this is something people like, this is part of like when the right or the left argue about things and they watch the same video of the same horrific shooting or whatever. Yeah. And one side sees it completely one way. Yep. And the other side sees it completely the other way. And both of them look at each other and they're like, don't you see the video? This is objective fact. Right. Right. What, right. what, 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 but the problem is that both groups have, you know, it's not that people are stupid or dishonest. Obviously, there are stupid and dishonest people. But the, the real issue, the reason that we can't talk through these things is because we're operating with different social imaginaries. Yeah. Right? Where you have a set of mental furniture that, let's say in this case, only lets you see this group of people, whether it's cops or some minority group or whatever, like this group of people, they're the problem. Yep. And this group of people, they're always right. Right. And so that's your that's your social imaginary. And you're in a community of people. This is why it's a social social imaginary. You're a community of people that that believes that validates that and makes it possible for you to live like that's true. Mm-hmm. And so when you see something like you're only able to think of it in that way. So the idea of the sacramental imagination is that we, we want to be able to cultivate a social imaginary where it is possible to see bread and wine and to know that it is the body and blood of Christ. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that that's up to my interpretation. And if I don't think that, then it's not true. I'm not a receptionist or Calvinist or any of those things. Right. But the thing is, if I don't have the mental furniture that makes it possible for me to engage with not just the narthex of the universe, but with the nave and with the sanctuary. Mm-hmm. If I don't have all the things in place that make it possible for me to think about a world, to imagine myself as living in a world where it's not just like the man upstairs and there's like this huge divide between us, but rather a world that is a single story that's totally penetrated by 
the love of God, by the Holy Spirit who is everywhere present and fills all things, by the, the tender embrace of the mother of God, by the courage of the martyrs, by the constant companionship of our guardian angels. Um, and all of these people, these persons, who are constantly with us and, and are actually involved in our lives. If I don't have the, the let's say, the imaginative capacity to, to, to live like that is true, then I can agree to whatever catechism or whatever creed or whatever you know, set of beliefs that you want to say, I can sign my name under it and say, yeah, I believe all that stuff is true and still be a completely functional atheist. Yep. Yep. Have you ever read um, Brad's Head Revisited? Yes. I yeah. love that book. Um, Very nice. Rex Matram. Is that the – I think that's the guy who – He It's very similar, you know, uh, when he's kind of – they're kind of teaching him. They're kind of trying to catechize him, and he's just – they describe him as, like, his imaginatively stunted or something like that. Where he just like, oh yeah, sounds good to me. Like that sounds fine. All this sounds right. great, you know, because he wants to. I think marry. I can't remember. It's been a little while since I've read it, but he wants to marry one of the family members to get into the family or something. And yeah, they're like, we need to be a Catholic, you know. He's like, oh fine, I'll do it. And so he's just going through the motions, right? He doesn't actually believe any of the stuff that they're teaching him. He's just like, oh, this is fine. Like this sounds good to me, <laughs> you know. But he's yeah. really still a, a an atheist, um, right? Even though he doesn't really, he might not think he's one, but he acts and. Nothing changes in interior. Right. Well, there's, there's a difference, a little bit of a difference between like an anti-theist, right? Mm -hmm. Who's just like, you're very angry at, you don't, you believe God doesn't exist and you're angry at God for not existing, as Cicero right. says. Yeah, yeah. Versus somebody who's like a functional atheist. In other words, they just don't live in a way yeah. like that indicates that they believe in God at all. Right. right. And that's most American Christians, I I think. That's my, in 100%. My 100%. Yeah. yeah. They just... Yeah. They go to church on Sundays and, and you know, and that's, it's a social thing for the most part. Um, and even among if, Catholics, if, if they do, know, if they go to church on Sunday at all, if they, yeah. Uh, because, because like we're, we're, uh, we're coming up more and more against a sort of like, let's say churchless Christianity Yeah. where, where people, people really think, uh, that, at, in such a way that, the idea of attending a church or participating in a ritual or even, you know, like all that stuff, like it's, it's totally ancillary. It's like a nice to have, Oh yeah. If you can find a, a nice church, that's mm -hmm. great for you. Um, but you know, I, you know, I, I'm a Christian, but I don't really go to church, but I, but I, I read the Bible and I pray and I talk to God and things like this. And, you know, so, so it's, I mean, it's a very strange thing yeah. that we're, we're up against right now this, this sort of churchless Christianity. It's in, almost, um, a, it's an indifference. It's a yeah stifling, crippling indif indifference. You know, they, people a lot of people just don't care. For some people, it's an, it's indifference. Um, but I and I know because I've I've talked to some of these people. For some people, they it's it's not that they don't care about God, mm -hmm. and they wouldn't think of themselves in that way. They just can't conceive of. Why would I need anyone else in the relationship? Right. Yeah. So it's not just indifference. It's a it's a fundamental misunderstanding of the way that a relationship with God works. Hmm. Um, the idea, I mean, it's it's the it's the exaggerated consequence of the rejection of the communion of the saints. 
Right. Yeah. So you, you start out by rejecting the Christians you can't see. And you say, <laughs> well, I don't need Mary to come between me and Jesus. Right. right? As, as though she's ever done that. <laughs> right? right. As though she's ever done yeah. that. So, so you say, like, I don't need Mary to come between me and Jesus. And then pretty soon, you know, give or take a few hundred years, it becomes, well, I don't need a, a pastor to come between me and Jesus. Right. right? And so, yeah. it, so it's like, it's that, so you start out by rejecting the Christians you can't see. And then eventually, <laughs> eventually, like, there's no compelling argument for why you would need to go to that particular building right. on this arbitrary day of the week. Yeah, why you need anybody to hear your sin, you know, uh, hear your sins or... You know, I just tell, I just say that to God directly, you know, or, you know, you don't need any intermediates to, um, to help, you know, to confess your sins and to receive the sacraments or anything like that. And, but that's precisely how, you know, God operates vast majority of the time is through intermediaries, you know? (laughs) Well, and and because God, God loves us so deeply and he wants us to share in his work in the world yeah yeah like everyone believes this to some extent uh, most of the time we only believe it about ourselves though right we're like you know like we, we have this sort of like let's say like a chosen one mentality yeah right and, and and like you know and i know people who never go to church you know and and have huge major issues with organized religion Sometimes they're like, you know, it's like legitimate pain that they are not able to work there or whatever. But then at the same time, they also believe, you know, well, God spoke to me and told me it's my mission to like call these people out on their sin. And, and, you know, and so it's like, it's like, I don't need all of that, but those people need me, Mm, you know? And so, so it's like, it's like, I'm, I'm the prophet, right? I'm the one that's on the mission. Um, and, you know, again, I'm not trying to pick on anybody, especially people who have experienced real pain and trauma. Right. I want to be very clear about that. But um, but let's just say, kind of getting steering back on the topic here. Yeah. It's all one big topic. <laughs> it's, all, it's all one topic. Um, you, so you have two options. You can turtle down or you can try to develop a proper appetite, mm-hmm. you know, which is really what the sacramental sacramental imagination is. It's not reenchantment in the sense that I'm going to reenchant the world, but rather it's it's reenchantment from the perspective of my perspective of the world, which actually participates in the world. Mm-hmm. Like we even know this, like in science, like on a quantum physics level, that our our perception actually does, like change the universe on a subatomic level yeah right and i mean i mean that's insane unless you're a christian and then it's just like yeah well yeah right you know (laughs) yeah yeah um and and so what the way that tolkien says it is this way he says that recovery um so recovery is to tolkien is one of the three purposes one of the three virtues of fairy stories is a regaining of a clear view he says, I might venture to say it's seeing things as we are or were meant to see them, mm-hmm. as things apart from ourselves. Fantasy is made out of a primary world, but a good craftsman loves his material and has a knowledge and a feeling for clay, stone, and wood, which only the art of making can give. By the forging of Graham, cold iron, iron was revealed. By the making of Pegasus, 
horses were ennobled. In the trees of the sun and moon, root and stock, flower and fruit are manifested in glory. It was in fairy stories that I first divined the potency of the words and the wonder of things, of the things such as stone and wood and iron and tree and grass, house and fire, bread and wine. And what I would say is that I only, I, I, I climbed trees for years, but uh, as a child and, 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 you know, saw trees every day, but there was something about trees, which I did not really understand until I encountered the, the, the nymphs and the dryads in the, the Chronicles of Narnia. And there was something about horses, even though I worked at a horse ranch as a teenager, there's something about horses that I didn't really understand until I read The Lord of the Rings and I met Shadowfax, mm -hmm. the Lord of Horses, which enriched my imagination as regards interacting with horses in a really beautiful way. There was something about communion which even you know growing up in a baptist church where you only had crackers and grape juice and there was no sense of sacrament at all but i had read the voice of the don treader and encountered the the um just the the meal of bread and wine at coriakin's table and there was something captivating, even about the, the little cracker, the little wafer and the grape juice that although it was not communion, right? Not the Lord's body and blood. Mm -hmm. um, but it did feed in me a hunger for his body and blood, which is what brought me into the Orthodox Church. So all of these different things, right? So reading fairy tales, reading these kinds of stories honed my appetite for a certain experience of the world and ultimately for Christ. And as the dark side of reenchantment starts to rear its awful, awful tentacled head. <laughs> We need the good stories, the good magic that is going to shape our appetites, the appetites of our children for the liturgy. Mm -hmm. And I, I said in my talk, like, if you lived in medieval Russia or, you know, Constantinople in the days of its glory or, you know, 14th century medieval France, maybe you don't need these stories because you already basically live in an enchanted world. But for those of us who live right now, it's absolutely crucial that we have our imagination shaped in this way. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of, I would say like, that's the basic premise of my whole project. Like all the different things that I'm doing, that's what ties them together. Yeah. And that's, I have a similar kind of, uh, in my first episode, I think I mentioned this, um, 
But when you were talking about Tolkien, you know, reading it as a child and preparing your imagination, um, when I was in college, I read, and I wasn't a practicing Catholic at that point, but um, I read C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. And, um, yeah. and oddly enough, I mean, this isn't so crazy, but um, Jim Butcher, um, his Dresden Files. <laughs> have, you, have you ever read those? So I haven't read Dresden. Okay. Um, I, I, have, I have friends who have. Okay. Um, There's a character in there who's a, a very devout Catholic, and seeing him, he's like a knight, you know, seeing him um, be unironically devout and Catholic. It, I didn't realize this until like years later, um, but like that influenced me. To, didn't that like make it possible for you to actually think of yourself in those terms, right? Yeah, I mean, it, to, to yeah. an extent, for sure, yeah. Yeah, but that's an exact. That's a perfect example of like what I'm talking about—the social imaginary. Mm -hmm. Like, you might have been, and I don't know. I didn't know you at that stage in your life, but you might have been like kind of pretty cynical about like religion and religious people. Well, m right? most of my formation, um, man, I just I'm thinking about this stuff like you know the show Family Guy, uh, constantly digging at Catholicism, right? Um, because yeah. Seth, Seth MacFarlane is a huge atheist, um, and there was one episode in particular that really stuck in my imagination where it was like they're imagining a it was like an alternate future or something and Catholicism had never like quote unquote suppressed science which it has never done um and it, you know there's just this utopia of scientific progress and everybody's beautiful and all these people are you know everything is just amazing and nobody even goes to the bathroom anymore everything's so perfect um and that stuck with me you know I didn't really realize it I just thought it was kind of a joke but that it was like, oh yeah, the church is anti-science, you know, like that's, <laughs> and oh. I watched that as like a, you know, teenage, maybe younger, which now I'm like, Family Guy is a terrible show. <laughs> it's awful. Right. This stuff um, does, this stuff does can do serious damage to us. Yeah. And I didn't realize it until years later that I'm like, oh, that was a huge bias I kind of had that I didn't really realize I had until. So that's, I mean, that's a great pair of examples because in the, because yeah. uh, you're, they're both narratives they're both stories. Um, and, and this just goes to show like this stuff works, whether or not it's like particularly highbrow, like, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to say something right now because I'm on somebody else's podcast. Um, so here it goes. This is going to be the craziest thing I've said all day. Um, <laughs> and you don't know the day that I've had, but it's been a very long day. I've said a lot of crazy things. So here, here is the craziest thing I've said all day. We might need a bunch of really schlocky christian pulp fiction and i don't mean i don't mean like a bunch of pulp fiction that's like like aggressively christian or whatever but just yeah. like like let me frame this in a little bit better of a way because like uh, i just heard a thousand typewriters engage and we're getting terrible like touched by an angel you know <laughs> fanfic um but I guess what I mean is like, like, okay, okay. So, so Tolkien sets the standards so freaking high. I know. You know, it's like so impossible. I think that's high. part it's of like, the problem. I think that it's like, how could I? It's like, it's you. You look at Tolkien, and like, I like, I legitimately believe that that he was just like so deeply tapped into this stuff, right? Into like the ley lines of language and yeah. myth and history and all the stuff that it's impossible to do what he did for most people. Right. Like, like it's just, it just can't. And, and I think that you're right. Like that, 
that stops us sometimes from from just like telling a pretty good story right and like letting it just be a pretty good story yeah and it's like this doesn't have to be the new lord of the rings right like just like tell a tell a pretty good story and right. and let it be what it is um because that's the thing like something like you know uh as you know something like family guy right that that added that that changed your mental let's say your mental furniture right it changed your moral imagination yep right to where you started to conceive of a world where it was possible that religion didn't exist right and that it was a good world impossible humans are were so inherently religious yeah if you abolished every like completely wiped out every religion we'd start worshiping something we'd start one in five minutes yeah like um and there's some shows out there um Actually, Raised by Wolves is a great uh, is a great examination of this this idea. Um, I mean, it's a it's a fairly mature show. I don't recommend it for everyone. Mm-hmm. But basically, the guy that the guy that wrote the show is like, yeah, humans are inherently religious. Like, you can't get away from it. Yeah. And um, there's there's a, there's a, a tabletop role playing game right now that uh, that I'm running for some friends of mine called Fading Suns, which is like. Uh, it's it's basically like Catholicism in space. It's like <laughs> it's like four thousand years in the future. Humanity has gone to the stars, and we're even more religious than ever. I'm writing that down. What's it called? Basically, uh, Fading Suns. Fading, Fading Suns. Uh, it's a really cool system, and, and I will say the writers of the actual game very often are super cynical about religion. Okay. At least the current writers of the game. It just recently went to a new publishing house. They are super cynical about religion, but what? But I run it straight, you know, okay. because obviously I actually believe in these things. But the guy that put the game together initially, he 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 started working on the premise because like. A normal thing in sci-fi, Star Trek, etc. Um, a normal thing in sci-fi is to be basically like, well, humanity has improved beyond the point where religion is is necessary, right. and so we're able to discard it. And he said, no, that's not how anything works. <laughs> like, 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 uh, as if humanity ever does go to the stars, we're going to get more religious, and it's going to be crazy. Yeah. It's gonna be- bonkers and so that's basically what fading suns i mean that was his original premise and like i said the current the current writers of the game are are, are maybe pretty cynical in their portrayal but a, a good gm can can kind of like work around that stuff sure but but anyway all that to say um family guy made it possible for you to imagine yourself living in a world where religion wasn't necessary mm-hmm. and where it might have actually been an impediment to living a happy fulfilled human life right right and that made it possible i mean not just that i'm sure there are other things but that made it possible for you down the road to walk away from your faith and to think that this is actually a good thing that i'm doing this will right. be good for me it'll be good for my like mental health or whatever right and then the Dresden book. I mean, Dresden's a great example of like a pretty okay story. Like I've read parts of a couple of his books, and the writing's not great. Like it's not. <laughs> it's like it's, it's a not, pulp adventure. But that's the thing. It's pulpy, yeah. and like I've got several pulpy books published myself, so like I have a sympathy for the genre. Let us say. Right. Um, and, and that's the thing. Like the writing is not like you know, it's not like high literature or something like that. But it's a fun, engaging story that lots of people have enjoyed, and you were you were able to find this character who was like unironically, you know, the the model of like a, a, a chivalrous Catholic knight, right? 
And that helped you start to conceive of a world where it would be possible for somebody to actually authentically believe in this stuff. Right. Right. And, and so, I'm not so the only person who said that too about the Dresden file specifically. Um, yeah. I know one other person on Twitter who, um, that influenced her return to the church as well. Um, now I, I, I'm not, I don't want to put too much emphasis on how much impact it had, uh, but it had, it had some, you know, it's just like family guy. It had an, it had an impact. It like pushed yeah. in one direction, you know, just a little bit, just a nudge, you know, the book, um, uh, the Bram Stoker's Dracula had a very similar effect for me. Yeah. Um, you know, because like a main plot point, like the whole plot point of that story, like the whole reason that people now like, like pop culture is misremembered it. And they think that crosses scare vampires. Mm-hmm. Crosses don't scare vampires. Crucifixes scare vampires. Right. Yeah. Why? For the same reason that vampires won't go close to a consecrated host. Mm-hmm. Because the crucifixes have a corpus on them. They have the body of Christ on right. them. This is a major plot point in the story. And I read that I read that story right as I was in this in this question of like this mode of like trying to work out my what I believed about the Eucharist and all these different things. And I read the story and the story was a very compelling nudge yeah. in that direction. To be like, you know, it really does matter. Um, and my wife, my wife has a crucifix that she wears. It's like a Celtic mm-hmm. kind of a cross, like a Celtic cross, but then it has a crucifix on it. And when we were getting, um, you, you guys probably have something like this when in the Orthodox church, when you're, you're received either by baptism or by chrismation, uh, you're given like a baptismal cross and you wear it every day for the rest of your life. Hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I don't think we have that. It's not as popular. Uh, I don't think it's as popular. Yeah. 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 So I, I have, I have just like a, a, a very, I'm wearing it under my shirt right now. I have a very plain stamped metal three bar cross. And that's what I usually wear. Um, um, and then, but, 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 but my wife, when she got her, when she got her cross, she specifically wanted something that had the corpus on it. Yeah. Because she wanted to be able to like show to the world. I'm not just a Christian. I'm this kind of Christian. Yeah. I'm yeah. the kind of Christian that believes the body of Christ matters, mm-hmm. you know, and that matter matters. Right. Yeah. Yep. And, and, um, and my wife is, is, you know, like much more spiritually intuitive than I am. And, and I was like, she told me that I was like, Oh yeah. Yeah. That's, that's good. I like that. You know, as she, she wanted to be able to show just to sort of say, like I'm, I'm this. I'm not just a Christian. I'm this kind of Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but, but you know, that's that's like that's what's going on in Dracula, right? Is is and of course the the main characters in Dracula are, you know, Protestants, and they're like offended when uh, what's his name, the Dutch dude, uh, or, uh, uh, Van Helsing. Van Helsing, like, yeah. Like breaks out a crucifix, and they're like a little shocked and offended because like you know, there's a you know, that's idolatry. We're, we're good Anglicans. We don't right, do that. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, but he's like, trust me. Well, didn't this is gonna, this is gonna work. Dracula. He moved from Eastern Europe because yeah. the, the peasants were all onto him and they all had the sacramentals yeah. and stuff and they're all, they all right. could defend against him. So he moved to England where everyone is skepticism, you know, agnosticism yes. is kind of creeping in and Christianity is kind of fading. It's like, Hey, this is the perfect place to set up shop and yeah. eat people. <laughs> 
because <laughs> they don't they won't believe I exist. You know? <laughs> right, right, and that's I mean, like if you, I mean, uh, it's a super timely book. Maybe we should read it again. Um, yeah, but yeah. <laughs> anyway, so so all that said, like I totally understand what you're saying. Like you, you get that that moment, you know, like where 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 you come across a let's say artful, compelling, entertaining fictional presentation of an idea mm-hmm. and that becomes the seed right that can then grow into something bigger and yeah. that works both ways as you've experienced right yep yeah yeah and that ties into your um the diabolical uh yeah, the what do you call the diabolical drama, drama. Yeah, yeah where you're shown um a picture a vision of the world that's kind of true but not quite or like there's falsehood yeah. there or it's outright false like um you yeah, in your example with Mor- morgoth um yeah. and Huron, you know and he's show, he's having Huron look through his eyes you know and see the world as morgoth sees it as nihilistic um yeah and full of malice which isn't true but it's true enough you know there is some truth to it because there is malice in in the world and um things can be bleak sometimes um but yeah. No, you, you get big points for for knowing who 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 Huron and, and Morgoth. Well, are, I read so your I read your speech, and I've read the Silmarillion, so right, um, right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so that's the thing. Like what Tolkien says is that Huron was cursed to see events unfolding, like the 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 tragedy of his family. He was cursed to see these events unfolding, but to see them, even though the facts themselves were true. To sort of like see a slant on all of those yeah. facts. Yep. That's basically, you know, that this this goes back to their argument. Their argument is simply this: is there hope beyond the walls of the world? Mm-hmm. And Morgoth's and Huron says there is. Morgoth says that's you know it's a lie you've been fed by the elves or whatever. There's nothing beyond the walls of the world. And in other words, here and here and now is all there is, and I am the Lord of here and now. Yeah, and so and so the, everything that happens to Huron's children, according to Tolkien, is supposed to prove. Morgoth intends it to prove his point. So everything that Huron sees, and at least the ways that he perceives it, is deeply nihilistic. It's deeply, you know, the whole point is to say there's no eucatastrophe. There's no inbreaking of hope. Every time it seems like something beautiful is going to break into Turin's story, then it, it turns to ash in his mouth. Yep. Right. And, and so that's supposed to show because it's the, it's the exact opposite of eucatastrophe. Tolkien says the, the purpose of eucatastrophe is to show us, it's to be a foretaste of the fact that there is hope beyond the walls of the world. Mm-hmm. So you have Tolkien saying that in on fairy stories, and then at a very similar at a you know very similar stage in his life, he's writing this debate between Huron and Morgoth about whether or not there is hope beyond the walls of the world. Right. And and then Turin's story is supposed to be proof to Huron that, that there's not. And you cannot convince me that those two those two things are not related. Mm-hmm. That, like, in some senses, you could say the Turin, Turinbar's story is the ultimate challenge to Tolkien's whole theory of fairy stories. Right. And the, Tolkien and the wrote himself. He wrote a the, challenge to his own theory, like a literary yeah. challenge, which is really interesting. And the fact that you can still read this, the, the tale of Hurin as I read it 
every year. You can still read the tale of the children of Hurin, and even though everything is just awful all of the time, you get to the end and you somehow feel refreshed. Mm-hmm. Like you've gotten a, a part of yourself back, even though that makes no sense based on anything that happened in the story. To me, that's the ultimate vindication of Tolkien's whole project. Um, uh, we've talked about this on the Tool podcast, uh, but Dr. Lisa Kutras, who's been a guest on that podcast three or four times, uh, she talks about, um, uh, and I think she's 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 pinging off of uh, uh, Hans Urs von Balthasar, which mm-hmm. is either he's either like a Swiss Roman Catholic theologian. Or a supervillain. I'm not sure which. <laughs> he might be both, according to who you ask. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he could be both. Um, uh, well, okay, so the thing I love about Balthazar is that he's actually uh, mostly commenting on St. Maximus. Yeah, yeah, he does a lot, uh, of the, he does a lot on St. Maximus. Um, yeah. And that's where yeah. he's at his best, is with when he's yes. commenting yeah, on St. Maximus. Yeah, I agree, Maximus, I agree. Yeah, Maximus. yeah. so, but the, the, the thing that, um, he wrote a book on Greek tragedy, which is quite good. Hmm. Uh, I cannot remember the name of the book now, but um, but in that in that book he talks about the idea that the glory of God is hidden in tragedy, but it's still present, but it's but it's under a veil. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I, what I would say is that that is essentially my intuitive grasp of the world. Um, that makes it even, makes sense, right? Because. Christ died on a cross, you know, that's like, right. Right. And, and, and I mean, and but it's also his, paradox, of his victory at, at the, over death, you know, somehow, somehow the cross was the unveiling of, of Christ's glory. Yeah. Um, and that's a, that's, I mean, that's, I mean, that's the ultimate paradox right there. Like you, I mean, so, so in the, in the Syria, Syrian tradition, there's this idea that at the moment of the crucifixion, the Shekinah or the, the Shekinah glory of God left the temple. There's another tradition that says it actually wasn't there to begin with, but anyway, but it says, you know, the idea is that the glory of God vacated the temple and and took up residence in the cross. Wow. And at the, that moment, that's why the the so seen from the Syrian in his in his retelling of it he has the temple being rent in two and it really is this way if you read matthew careful matthew's gospel carefully but he has the the temple veil rent in two Mm -hmm. at the very moment the spear pierces christ's side yeah and so as the veil of his body is torn Right. Remember, a temple is a human being, and yeah, every human yeah. being is a temple. Right. As the temple of his body, the veil of his body, the temple of his body is torn into and opened to reveal his glory, mm-hmm. which is the glory of the crucified God Man. The veil over the sanctuary, over the holy place, the most holy place in the temple, is rented to to show God isn't here; mm. He's on the cross. Yeah, that's crazy. That's good stuff. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, this is, I mean, this is why I want to read more St. Maximus because I, I'm like, this is yeah. so. I think this is like critical to, yeah, to whatever this reenchantment project really is, 
which I haven't had like I haven't heard like a good definition of what it means to be like what reenchantment means. You know, um, it's not just elves and fairies, right? It's right. <laughs> it, the closest um, I've heard is like um, it's like the, like a sacramental life. You know, like kind of just en- entering more fully into like liturgy and um, yeah. So so that that definition of the sacramental imagination that I read a minute ago. I mean, this gets really close, right? Is an imagination that works in sacramental terms, seeing the material world as participant in and mediator of the divine. Mm-hmm. So this is this this is the important concept, and this is the whole. I mean, this is uh, like uh, uh, Saint John of Damascus in his three treatises on the holy icons, which I think, if you're a Christian. Who wants to make art, whether it be you want to write poetry, you want to write fiction, you want to paint pictures, you want to make cartoons, whatever. If you're a Christian and you want to make art, St. John's, St. John of Damascus, his first treatise on the holy icons should be required reading. Because what he does in there is to work out, and he works it out from the scriptures and from the church fathers exactly what is the relationship between matter and let's say spiritual things like between the seen and the unseen because this is the big scandal right the big scandal that people had a hard time with uh because of their gnostic and greek philosophical influences it's the same thing that we have a big hard a really hard time with today because of our our calvinist uh, influences just like living in America you have like a like a it's like a low level migraine all the time but the migraine is Calvinism um, <laughs> I'm really sorry Calvinist <laughs> but also I'm not sorry I was predestined to say that so like there you go with it. Yeah. I don't know what to you know, tell you um, <laughs> the 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 uh, so the, the the thing that they were scandalized with back then and that we're scandalized by now is that we you know is that we want to have this really high idea of the glory of god and that high idea of the glory of god says he's so far above us we could never possibly understand him and that is true but on its own it's also deadly heresy mm-hmm. right because the other half of that equation the other side is that God loves you so much. He wants to be known by you. And so not only did he create you to know him, but even when we had fallen away, he did not let us go totally into non-being. But he took on our flesh. He became man. And he did everything which is necessary. In the Divine Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, we actually thank God for all the things that he did for our salvation that we know, but also for the things that we don't know about. Hmm. Like, I mean, that thought, that line, that just kills me every Sunday. Hmm. Every time I hear it, that line in the, it's in our anaphora, which would be like the Eucharistic canon mm-hmm. um, for you guys. That line those which we know and which we know not for the benefits revealed and not revealed, which have been done for us. 
all of those things we're going to offer up thanksgiving to god so all of the things that christ did for us that we some of which we don't even know about but the one we do know about is that he took on our flesh he became matter for our sake and that 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 wasn't a seeming as actually some calvinists believed um as well as some early church heretics believed mm-hmm. it wasn't like a it wasn't just a seeming he didn't just seem to have a body he didn't temporarily take up a body and then discard it when he was done with it mm-hmm. um i've I actually once had someone ask me and i'm i'm not uh, i'm not the only person who's been asked this question like this is actually you know i used to be an evangelical minister and and this is a question that people asked a lot which is well where did jesus's body go when he went up into heaven hmm. yeah right? not to think about that question right saying well the body is not the real jesus the real jesus is up in heaven the body was just a thing that he had for a while so that we could see him Right, and that is not the teaching of the church. <laughs> this is why. This is why. Um, one of the things that I do love about traditional Latin Mass Catholics is that you guys still celebrate the Ascension on a Thursday. I think, yep. Um, yep. as literally as the good Lord intended. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. And uh, and we do as well. Um, we we uh, and the thing is the 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 ascension is not a footnote to the gospel. Right. It's not like oh, and Jesus finished his thing and now he's going back to heaven. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The ascension is so vital because what the writer of what Saint Paul says in, in Hebrews is that in the ascension, Christ is ascending and he's entering into the holy place and he's offering the once and for all sacrifice. In the holy place, it's the thing that actually makes Christian liturgy and worship possible. Mm. So that at the end of Hebrews, he can say, "But we have an altar from which the priests of the old covenant have no right to eat." He's talking about the Eucharist, right? He's talking about our altar, right? The Christian altar on which the Christian sacrifice is offered. Already in the first century, saying we have an altar. On which the priests of the old covenant have no, from which the priests of the old covenant have no right to eat, hmm. and so the the man the the so what Jesus does is he takes not just human flesh but like all of human nature into the heavenly places. Like we don't even know what that means, really. Mm-hmm. Like we have right. no way of imagining what that's like. So that there is a human being seated at the right hand of God the Father Mm -hmm. with a human nose and human ears and human eyes who has taken on everything that it means to be human. Archbishop Dimitri of Dallas, uh, who's the the sainted founder of, of our diocese and of my parish community, said, Jesus Christ is the whole truth about God, and he's the whole truth about man. Hmm. Everything that it means to be a human being is in Jesus Christ. And so what St. John of Damascus says is, I will not cease to revere matter when the one who made matter became matter for my sake. Mm Mm-hmm. And he he goes on to say, and of course he's writing the defense of the holy icons, 
but he goes on to say, in a very eerie uh, uh, prediction, one could say, of of modern evangelical worship, he says, <laughs> well, if you're going to take away the icons, you might as well take away the incense and the form of a cross. Mm-hmm. You might as well take away the bread, the wine, the water, the oil of the sacraments themselves right. and, ch- and, and beautifully chanted prayer. Like if you're going to do it with icons, you may as well do it with all of it. Cause right. it's all that. Right. Like you think the sound waves you're hearing in your ear when somebody reads the Bible, think that's not matter. Like, <laughs> right. like, come on, you know? And, and, and of course, like he, like when you're reading that as an evangelical, you're like, it's <laughs> like okay but we did actually do with all of those things say john so yay yeah, we we did it no <laughs> we did it yeah and all the way so, so so the sacramental imagination right is the ability to to basically engage with the world on sacramental terms it's the ability to see the material world as being capable of participating in the divine once you can see that, it becomes possible to paint an icon. Hmm. But also, at let's say a lower level on the mountain, it becomes possible to tell a story. Yeah. Because human things have the capability of participating in the divine. And it doesn't mean all human efforts are equal, right? Um, a Broadway musical will not participate in the divine to the same degree as, as, the, as the liturgy. Right. We don't need things to be like everything to be totally equivalent. And that's also okay. Like, it doesn't mean that if you're a musician or a a dancer or a writer or something like that, that you can't still also um, serve God with with those gifts. Like, we just need to be okay with being in the place where we are. Like, not everyone's called to be a priest. We're we're actually all called to be priests, but not everyone is called to the priesthood, let's say. Right. Well, there's a difference between like low art and high art, too. Um, where even like fairy stories, you know, um, they were told around a a fire usually, you know, their oral traditions and people just told them they were just, um, they, they probably weren't even well told, you know, (laughs) they, um, yeah, the, the, um, the oldest fairy tales that we actually sort of have collected, which are all, I just have to get my little philology dig in at this point, the podcast. (laughs) Uh, they're all collected early on by philologists yep. who are actually not so interested in the stories themselves that came later. They're interested in the words mm-hmm. because the oldest stories have the oldest words. And they wanted to like collect this sort of treasure house of all these old German words that nobody used anymore. And, and they were trying to get a sense for like dialects and things like this. But um, yeah, the, the words, the, the way that these stories were told, was very simple mm-hmm. very straightforward yeah i mean you read them and they're not i mean symbolically i think they're probably they're, they're pretty complicated but yeah as, as narrative goes they're very straightforward you know but i mean superhero stories are symbolically can be very symbolically rich mm-hmm. without being high literature yeah yeah yep um yeah, there's a there's a need for all sorts of um, art and storytelling. It doesn't see that's that's the thing with Tolkien is that he set the bar so high that we all compare everything to him. Yeah, you know? and that's not fair. 
<laughs> like we shouldn't right. do that, right? That's not everybody. Not everyone is is operating on that insane level of genius. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think Gene yeah. Wolfe gives him a run for his money. Um, but and Tim Powers too. Um, and what we need to Powers is is really brilliant in different ways. Yeah, he's not the he's not the same, but he operates. I mean, you're talking about Book of Enoch. I mean, like declare. It's all, all about so, the Book of Enoch. <laughs> so I'm a, I'm a really so the the Powers books that I've read I I read Declare every year. That's how much I love that book. Yeah. So so the, the, so as a, as an aside, I deeply love John Le Carre's spy fiction books. Okay. You know specifically the Carla trilogy, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which is what Declare is in the style of. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So basically, what he did is he took he took John Le Carre's style a bunch of weird unexplained things that really happened in the history of British espionage and basically turned all of that into a supernatural espionage thriller. And it's one of my favorite books because it's just, it's literally, it's the combination of like all of my favorite things. Yeah. Like, like he was like, Oh yeah, that Richard Roland guy likes, <laughs> you know, spy stuff and he likes Bible stuff and he likes, you know, all these kooky, you know, like all this, all this, like, you know, searching for the Ark stuff. And like, he's yeah. just into all of this. I'll put it all in a novel and throw in the Arabian Nights that he read when he was a kid. And, <laughs> and like, it's just like, you know, like chef kiss, like, like somebody has your number. And I have to say, um, I've actually corresponded with powers recently. Oh yeah. Uh, and this is one of the, I mean, just really a high point of my life, honestly. And it was very brief correspondence um, I reached out to him through a mutual friend to see if he would be interested in contributing an essay to uh, Finding the Golden Key. And he said, I love what you're doing. It looks like a cool project. I'm not a, I, I'm not a, a nonfiction writer. Mm -hmm. And I don't feel like I can really contribute something. But, you know, thank you for thinking. Is it, that was it. But I was like, you know, but I, on the outside, it was calm and composed. And like, well, that's okay. That's fine. And on the inside, I was like, Tim Powers. Yeah. <laughs> You know what's uh, funny? Um, this is another aside, but he's on Facebook and he's fairly active. Um, and he's he had this post where he said, you know what, what was the, what was the book that like shaped your, like that when you read it, it like changed you forever when you were a kid, you know. And uh, he he said it was um, Red Planet, I think, by Heinlein. And I actually said it was his books when I read them as, um, you know, in my tw early twenties, and. It, I'm like, yeah, you like sh completely like shaped my imagination from then on. It's just amazing. And he's like, well, I'm like, you baptized my imagination. I think I said, and he's like, well, I should be your honorary godfather then. <laughs> I'm like, that sounds great. <laughs> Please. Seems legitimate. Yeah. Yeah. That's super cool. Um, he's a really so yeah, nice his guy. books, his books. So I love to Claire. I love his, um, I love his, his two vampire books. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which I think are maybe his best. Like, well, no, Declare is his best. But it's two vampire books. Uh, Hide Me Among the Graves is the second one. The first one is, um, what is it? The Stress of Her Regard. Stress of Her Regard. Oh, my gosh. Those two books. Those two books just, like, were so riveting and, like, intense. And my wife is also super into Tim Powers. Oh, really? That's so, cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we, we, so we enjoy these books together. Um like we, we we listen to like the audiobooks of his stuff on car rides and things like nice. this. So, um, anyway, and my my, my wife uh, actually 
loves storytelling at a lot. And actually the way that we got to know each other when we were young, uh, we've known each other for a long time. I met her when I was 10. I got you beat. I met my wife when I was six. Oh, nice. Okay. But did you decide you were going to get married at six? Yes. I, I did. Okay. She did not. She did not decide. Okay. That. Okay. So th- no, yeah. I had the same thing happen as I, so my wife is uh, almost four years older than me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was 10 and she was, you know, 14. And uh, when you're a 14 year old girl, you don't notice 10 year old boys. You just don't. <laughs> it's not on your radar. It's not a thing. But I saw her and I was like, I'm going to marry that girl one day. <laughs> and 10 years later, I did. That's awesome. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no, that's good, man. Yeah, yeah. Finding finding a wife young and getting married young, like, there's just nothing better. It's fun. Yeah. No, I, I when I, we, we were in kindergarten, um, and I just knew, you know, like, I'm going to marry her someday. And she, you know, dated other guys and stuff. And I, I not for lack of trying, but I did not date anybody else. Um, and so... Yeah, we eventually, um, this is completely off topic, my goodness, but uh, I don't know if this will make it into the podcast, but uh, all, of, all of her friends came up to her separately. All of the, None of them knew they were doing this. Uh, and they said, you need to marry, you need to like date Aaron or something. Like you, you need to marry that guy. <laughs> so I'm indebted to all of her friends. <laughs> well, that's, that's awesome, man. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, so so uh, yeah, so I love Powers, and I, I think his books do have a really strong. Uh, I mean, he's got such a, a keen sacramental sense in in all of his stuff mm-hmm. um, that his books have a really have a really strong potential to wake people up, um, especially like if you're already a Christian but you don't come from a sacramental tradition, or maybe you do, but you've just never like really woken up to what's going on around, you know, yeah. at, at the liturgy, like when you're going to church, like, it's like, okay, well, we're just, we're, we're eating the, the wafer again or whatever. You well, know? in Declare, you um, know, they, I mean, I want to do a whole podcast on Declare with you, if that's cool. I, um, I, I do, dude, I could, <laughs> I could just go for so many hours about Declare. I'm about to start reading it again. So nice. I should do that too. I, but, so he's got yeah. this, um, spoilers, I guess, if anybody cares, um, but there's like an anti-communion in his in his yes. novel where the heroes in order to survive you know they have to enter into communion with the demonic entities while they are eating the they're devouring the sacrifice of these like soldiers on on Mount Ararat um super bad times yeah it's terrible and like they keep trying to leave but that if they if they leave the communion they'll be eaten too right so they have to like just they have to just live through this, and then it oh like my gosh. scars them like the rest of the. Oh, it's yeah, so his characters bad. just get the crap kicked out of them, man. It's, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, it's stuff like that where he has. In Last Call, if you ever read Last Call, it's a lot grittier than the other books because um, it takes place in Las Vegas. Yeah. Um, but it's like the mythical founding of Las Vegas. That's kind yeah. of what he's going with there, and the liturgy features heavily in last call so much though that i um like you just i shouldn't say anymore you should read it that's it's, cool that's that's, yeah. one, that's one of his books i haven't done too yet so I'll, I'll check it out um but yeah he's he's definitely like one of my favorite like current authors so yeah. i'm 
Uh, I would be really jazzed to talk about to talk about Declare and talk about. I mean, honestly, um, I could just talk about my deep love for John Lacari's espionage fiction for just ever. Um, <laughs> and, it, and the thing about the thing about um, well, there's a lot to say there, but uh, there is there is a there is a weird sacra. Uh, so this I haven't been able to put a finger on it right now. Like this is a very poorly formed thought, not for lack of trying. Like I just haven't been able to articulate it. Okay, but there's something inherently sacramental, um, you could say mysterious, in the sense that, you know, like in the Eastern Church, we very often refer to the sacraments as the mysteries, the holy mysteries. Mm -hmm. So there's something deeply mysterious in that sense about, let's say, detective fiction and, and espionage fiction. You know, the fact that there's sort of like a secret that has to be revealed. Um, and the, or, or the, the, you know, the existence of like a sort of a secret world that you enter into, right. Um, which is what espionage fiction is usually about. Yeah. Um, and, and in that sense, especially Lacari's espionage fiction, which is so, it, his, his world building is so tight and compelling that you do not realize when you're reading his books that he has essentially created a secondary fantasy world. Hmm where paperwork is magic like and and but you don't realize that it's happening because it seems so grounded and realistic but actually i think lacare okay i'll say a third crazy saying on your podcast <laughs> this would be the three crazy sayings of richard roland today i think lacare is the greatest uh speculative fiction author after Tolkien. Wow. I really believe that. I, I believe, I believe that, that Lacari's books are such compelling fantasy that they make you think they're not fantasy. Hmm. And yeah. that, and that he is, he's so good. Uh, especially, I mean, not, all, not, I mean, obviously every author who's written just like a butt ton of books will have some books that are better and other yeah. books that are not as good. But Lacari, when he's at his best, yeah, is just masterful. And there is there is something sacramental in his books. Even though Lacari is not a Christian, tended to be pretty cynical about religion. Mm-hmm. But it was almost just like he couldn't help himself. Yeah. Um, and his and his world building is just incredible. It's just incredible. So uh, and then basically, Declare picks up on that and just do, and does it really really well. But then also like brings in all the you know nephilim and stuff like it's great it's so great yeah so. well maybe we should probably wrap it up um, yeah 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 but I wanted to ask you so you mentioned fairies this is something I I want to do in each episode um, do you believe in fairies <laughs> short answer yes okay oh all right sounds good so the show is called I might believe in fairies so yeah. I'm I'm styling myself as agnostic on the subject yeah um, okay but, so the way to think about fairies is that fairies are remnants of broken hierarchies. Um, so we think of, we think of, I'm going to get into sort of speculative thinking. Please understand. I only represent my own views on this and not anybody else's. Uh, but when we get into, uh, so in the middle ages, there are basically three theories about where fairies come from. What does not occur to almost anyone is that there's no such thing as fairies. 
Right. So your three theories, your three theories, your first theory would be that they're just demons. Yep. Which would basically be the the theory of the Beowulf poet. Now, this does not mean that fairies don't exist. It means that they do exist, but they're demons. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's theory number one. Theory number two is that they are sort of half-fallen angels. Yeah. Uh, and this is the theory that is actually presented in Declare for his his jinn or his nephilim, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that is this idea that the fairies are angels who tried to hold neutral in the war in heaven between Lucifer or between the between the devil and uh, uh, Saint Michael. And um, there's no war. There's no real war with God. Right. right. It's not a thing. Yeah, but um, uh, they tried to hold neutral, and so because they held neutral, they were cast out of heaven, but not all the way down to hell. Right. Okay. So that's theory number yeah, two. Yeah, and they'll be destroyed, theory. annihilated when when right. the end of the right. world comes. So they're just or, or that, well, or that they won't be annihilated. They'll they'll just like eventually, like in the eschaton, they'll 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 have to either they'll have to like make their choice like they put their mm. choice off but they still have to make it yeah or that they'll be con- condemned, condemned the demons. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's theory number two the theory number three is a little complicated but it's essentially um let's say the unwashed children of eve so by the and this the, i mean you find this in like jewish folklore and other things and the idea is that you know god came to visit adam and eve one day after you know this, after they've been expelled from the garden, God came to visit them one day, and and uh, Eve was uh, surprised by his visit, or or she wasn't diligent as she should have been, and didn't wash all of her children up, you mm-hmm. know, and she was embarrassed to show them to God, and so it's the 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 ones that were still dirty, she she kept behind her back, and they mm-hmm. didn't get the blessing, right, yeah, and okay. so then they become they become the monsters. Right, and obviously you have like the the offspring of Cain and all this different stuff. Sure. Um, but those are all so so those are like your your main kind of theories in the Middle Ages about fairies. But if you look at if you look at places that really believe in fairies, um, what you'll I mean Ireland is a good example. In Ireland, you have these multiple waves of this fairy people wiped out this fairy people wiped out this fairy people mm-hmm. and but then if you go back far enough in the stories and or talk to people and like you know like wait so was this invading force were they actually fairies were they actually gods or were they just humans who took over and then became gods right mm-hmm. and it's very ambiguous uh in the ways that it's described right so you know the formorians and all these different groups uh, and so what i think you're seeing there this is my personal opinion <laughs> i think what you're seeing there is um, whenever we read in mythologies where you have one group of gods warring against another group of gods, what that pro- tells you probably happened, and this doesn't mean that this doesn't mean that that war between the those principalities and powers did not actually take place, but it, what it means is that you had a people group come in, and as the people group warred with each other, the principalities that those people groups basically conferred, you know, took their identity from also work with each other. Mm-hmm. Right. So you have these warring principalities and then some principalities get destroyed, but not totally just like some people groups get destroyed, but not totally. Mm. And the remnants of those shattered principalities 
are what we know as fairies. And I'll say a fourth root thing, and that 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 is that things like this. So there was that really famous like set of early photographs that were probably photoshopped, you know, in some way. That Sir Arthur Conan Doyle yeah, became really they, famous they, for. They were fake. The photos yeah. were fake. But well, the girls. I, 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 I know they're fake. But the girls said that they did see fairies and they, but yeah. they wanted to make everyone stop making fun of them. So they staged these photos with like cardboard cutouts, but they, they never said that the fairies themselves did not exist. Cause they said that they saw them. So here's the weird thing I'm going to say. <laughs> is this fourth okay. or fifth? Fourth weird thing. This is number four. This is number four. <laughs> so far they're not those, that weird. I don't know. Those photographs were really photographs of fairies in that they were participating in what fairies do, mm -hmm. right? What do fairies do? They, they trick you. They're the pranks. They, they sort of prank you. Yeah. And obviously there are like really scary fairies in some folklore and stuff, but for the most part, fairies are, uh, they're not, they're not malicious, but they just have, you know, ends or designs that we can't understand or, or they're, or they're really out just to kind of like, uh, have a good time and get a laugh and, and like, you know, uh, at the expense of human beings. Right. Yeah. And so like, these are, so, so in that sense, okay, those photographs really were photographs of fairies or, or that let's say the work of fairies and that they were participating in the things that fairies do, which is to sort of operate in this, ambiguous kind of tricky way mm -hmm. um and so so that's one of those things it's like well yes the photos were doctored but that's the only way you'd ever get a picture of a fairy hmm. yeah because that's because that's what they do so yeah, um so i would so i would say that you know short answer is yes long answer <laughs> is it's kind of complicated but yes <laughs> Sounds good. Well, maybe we'll end it there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thanks, man, for coming on. It's been fun. Dude, this was just the most fun. Um, I've had uh, actually a really cool day, and this was just like a, a wonderful way to cap it off. Um, you're a really gracious host, and you just let me ramble for two hours. That straight. is what I wanted. That's what I wanted. I'm like, I just want my guests to talk. Like, I don't. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm happy you sent me what you sent me because. Um, uh, but for the most part, I'm like, just go for it. Just, just say things. Just say interesting things that we'll all learn. We'll all learn, and you know, we'll compare Tolkien to the liturgy, and that'll be cool. <laughs> so, uh, great. All right. Thanks, man. Yeah, thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of I Might Believe in Fairies. Please leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Please follow me on Twitter at Aaron Erber and like me on Facebook. If you're excited to see where the podcast is going and want to offer some support for the project, you can find me on Patreon. Music is by Alexander Nakarada, and podcast art was designed by my wonderful sister-in-law, Linnea Kisby. Until next time, talk to you soon. <laughs>